Welcome to Episode 7 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where listeners decide which of the unwatched movies of my collection they're going to make me watch this month. That voting takes place at Bureau42.com. It's the right-hand side on desktop or the bottom of the front page on mobile. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're looking at the 1987 edition of RoboCop, originally released on July 17th, 1987. So the 30th anniversary is just around the corner, which is why in the nine-way tie that we had for first place in the original round of voting, RoboCop was scheduled at this point. So the film was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who's best known for the original Total Recall from 1990, Starship Troopers, this, Basic Instinct, and Showgirls. His trademark as a director is to include extreme sex and violence layered almost distractingly over some kind of satire and social commentary. There are two credited writers. Edward Neumeyer is known for this and the first three Starship Troopers movies. And Michael Miner is known for this, Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Ciderspace, and Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. So neither seems to have a stellar career as far as the IMDb is concerned. But Neumeyer does seem to have at least a few more high-profile projects, while Miner has a wider variety of projects. The cast includes Peter Weller as Alex Murphy, a.k.a. the title Robocop. He's also known for playing the title character in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in his journeys across the Eighth Dimension, for The Naked Lunch, and for playing Admiral Marcus in Star Trek Into Darkness. Nancy Allen plays his partner Anne Lewis, who's also known for the original Carrie, Blowout, and Dress to Kill. Dana Herlihy plays the old man who ran the company, also known for Failsafe, Halloween 3, and The Last Starfighter as Grig. His career goes back to the 1940s in both film and radio. Ronnie Cox plays Dick Jones. He's also known for the 1990 Total Recall, for playing Lieutenant Bogomil in the Beverly Hills Cop series, for playing Drew in Deliverance. For some of us, he's Captain Jellico in Star Trek The Next Generation. Kerwood Smith plays Clarence J. Bodeker, a.k.a. Red Foreman on That 70s Show. He's also in Deadpool and Society and Rambo 3. He's done a number of voice acting roles as well, including some on the Justice League cartoons and other Timverse cartoons. I personally will always associate him with his guest spot in the Season 3 episode of The X-Files, Grotesque, in which he played Mulder's mentor. Miguel Ferrer plays Bob Morton. He's also known for Mulan, Crossing Jordan, and Iron Man 3. Robert Doki plays Sergeant Warren Reed, also known for Nashville, Coffee, and Shortcuts. Ray Wise plays Leon C. Nash, also known for Leland Palmer on Twin Peaks, Jeepers Creepers 2, X-Men First Class, and for playing Satan on Reaper. Felton Perry plays Johnson, also known for his work in Dumb and Dumber, Magnum Force, and Hooperman. Paul McCrane plays M.L. M. Antonowski, also known for his roles in Shawshank Redemption, ER, and the famed film but I'll always know him as Leonard Betts from The X-Files. And Jesse D. Goins plays Joe P. Cox, also known for The Ugly Truth, War Games, and Patriot Games. Now, attentive listeners may have noticed that the IMDb lists the four projects that people are best known for, if they've got at least four projects behind them. And a lot of the people I just listed off, I only listed three also known for. The ones that have four or more were ones where I was adding the fourth and fifth titles, because every single one of these people has RoboCop in their top four, also known for films. So one of the questions I like to answer for these is, why do I own it, but haven't gotten around to watching it yet? This one actually showed up on the greatest science fiction film tournament list. So when I saw the trilogy for 20 bucks on DVD, I grabbed it. 
It actually came out in 127th place in the first round of voting, so it was bumped from round two by a wild card, since it was the top 120 places plus eight wild cards that went to round two. Now, the reason I've been sitting on it for so long without watching it properly is that I'm not generally a fan of Paul Verhoeven. I wasn't terribly motivated to get around to watching it soon. I'd say watching it properly, it was almost cheating to put it on the list because I had sort of seen it before. I saw the Safe for TV edit when I would have been about 13 or 14 years old when it first came out. And I didn't particularly enjoy it then. I did enjoy it more this time. And some of that is because, as I now understand, a Safe for TV edit of a Paul Verhoeven film is in no way representative of that Paul Verhoeven film. Uh, Safe for TV just, I'm not going to say he can't make Safe for TV films, but he certainly chooses not to when he's got that choice. And these days with his career, he's got that choice. So the reason it's getting covered now is one I've already mentioned. The first round of voting actually had a nine-way tie for first place in terms of the top vote gatherers for which ones I should talk about. This was part of that nine-way tie, but it was positioned specifically in July, simply because the 30th anniversary is just a couple of days away. Now, in terms of the inspiration for this, I know it got made because the screenwriters were shopping the script from studio to studio, and most had flat out turned it down, and Verhoeven was even ready to turn it down. He read the first few pages and then tossed it aside, but it was actually his wife who picked it up and finished it, and then came back to him and said, hey, no, you need to keep reading because these elements that you like in your work, the satire of the corporatization of America, you know, the violence and extreme actions that he does gravitate to, were all there. They were just later on in the script. The first few pages just didn't grab him, or apparently anyone, the way they should have. Now, what inspired the writers to write it? I don't know. I haven't seen that in any of the trivia. Unfortunately, this is an insanely busy month at work for me, so I didn't have a chance to listen to the commentary on this title, as I prefer to do. So I don't know if it's there, but this is the first published work as far as the IMDb is concerned. I don't know about short stories or novels that wouldn't have made that list. So this does seem to be, you know, something of maybe a passion project or inspiration. It's some, an idea that they had and wanted to bring forward. So the plot is almost deceptively simple. In the future, the Detroit police force has been privatized, and crime is absolutely rampant. One of the reasons the privatization didn't work is because one of the corporate heads doesn't care about ethics as much as he cares about profit, which is part of Verhoeven's standard anti-corporate message. So he's not just funding the police, he's funding and pro- offering protection to one of the top criminals in town. Officer Alex Murphy and his partner find this group of criminals, and in a rather misguided or outright stupid decision, they decide to move in when they know that they are outnumbered, outgunned, and moving in unfamiliar territory without backup. Murphy pays the price in a very violent death. He somehow survives and is rebuilt as a cyborg officer, and the rest of the film is about Robocop sort of at war with himself. The robot portion is out there trying to do its job, but it's been programmed with a directive that prevents him from attacking or moving against any of the board of of the corporation that is running the private Detroit police force. So he can't touch Dick Jones, who's sort of at the top of this conspiracy. Now that Robocop is also at war with the Alex Murphy side of him. So those memories and that personality are trying to resurface and retake the identity and go back in control. So there is some depth to this, 
but it's almost lost in the way it was received. All I clearly remember about this is the huge, huge stink about how much violence there was in this movie, and that it, at the time, held the record for the most active violence. Now, it doesn't have more violent scenes than a lot of the police movies at the time, but the level of gratuitous violence in those scenes is tremendous. If we go, for example, to the scene where Officer Murphy dies, he just needs to be fatally wounded, and that's all they need to establish it. And it starts off with him getting his hand shot off by a shotgun in actually a fairly realistic blast. A shotgun blast from that close would destroy someone's hand. But then there's a gang of five or six criminals who just unload about 15 or 20 shotgun rounds into them each. I mean, if each shotgun blast is an act of violence, that's how that tally got racked up so high. But we're talking dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of shotgun shots into them from, you know, maybe three, four meters or Imperial units 10, 15 feet away. There wouldn't be any of Alex Murphy left. These are all hitting him. The violence has gone so over the top that it actually suspends disbelief. Even later scenes where, okay, he slashes someone's jugular and the blood sprays out. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure and it sprays, but that far and when every act of violence has something that extreme, that's just pushing credulity and plausibility. Yeah, it's going to happen sometimes, but every single time, the violence is so extreme that it almost distracts you from the actual anti-corporatization of American message that is embedded in this and all of Verhoeven's work. Now, in terms of the production itself, Verhoeven is a capable director. He knows how to tell his stories. The studio he was working for was Orion, which was very hit or miss. It was a relatively new production studio. It was around for most of the 80s and then went away again. There are signs here that indicate it seems to be made with lower quality film stock, but at the same time, it's got some, at least for the day, fairly impressive stop motion. But a lot of the big confrontations, it's just lots of ammunition and lots of blood, more than lots of choreography and camera setups. In terms of how this worked at the box office and how well it succeeded, the worldwide box office numbers are not readily available, and some of that may be because Orion may not have even had a significant international distribution arm. But looking at domestic numbers only, we know that the production budget eventually reached $13 million. It actually ran over budget. And Verhoeven and his producers knew that they were going to be over budget and over schedule, so they deliberately put off filming The Death of Murphy. So when the time of money ran out, they were missing that absolutely critical scene. And the studio, rather than cut their losses and take the big hit, just gave them the extra money that they needed to finish the film. So using our rule of thumb, that a movie is profitable if the domestic gross is two to three times the production budget, it would be considered profitable if it grossed somewhere between 26 and 39 million domestically. The domestic gross was actually $53,424,681. So the ratio is about 4.11 to 1, which means it was definitely profitable. As far as recognition within the film industry goes, it did win an Oscar Special Achievement Award from the Academy for Sound Effects Editing, but in terms of Oscar Night and the main ceremony, it was nominated for Best Sound and Best Film Editing, but won neither. Now, we do like to look for messages, morals, and meanings in the movie in a segment of the podcast that I've shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. They're doing great work. As I said, this does demonize the corporatization of America and the American draw for extreme sex and violence, that the sex and violence is so over the top that you could almost lose those messages about the corporatization of America 
and the sense of identity and getting swallowed up by those corporations where people just become the products rather than individuals. So those elements are definitely there. And there is a lot of meat on this, but you've got to wade through the blood, gore, and gunshots to find it. In any event, that's all we have to say about Robocop. Now, in that original nine-way tie for first place, there are still two films left to cover. In August, we will be covering Sin City. And in October, we will be covering Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm going to just push that past the September release and into October just to keep it with the Halloween theme. And the September title will be one of the ones that was tied for second place. That announcement will come next month. So join us next month for Sin City. Thank you for listening.